We are in John 14 this morning, continuing our study through the Gospel of John as we take the Lord's Supper together. Now we're going to be in John 14, 15 through 26. When you think about relationships in general, relationships are maintained by kind of what effort or what our response is to the other parties in the relationship. And I think about a few relationships that I have had over the course of my life that some have gone really well and some have gone uh, really poorly. I can think about my uh, short-time best friend in the fifth, fifth grade, Hunter Matlock. Uh, short-time best friend because he was at my house, insulted the cake my mom made, and I punched him in the stomach and then drove my fist into his back, thus ending our friendship. <laughs> short-time best friend, Hunter Matlock. And what, what the thing that destroyed our friendship was the turmoil over his insulting of the cake my mom made. Clearly a violation of friend code, right? Clearly a violation of friend code. Now, you may say that I went overboard striking him twice. And I would say, as a fifth grader, it seemed appropriate. But as a 38-year-older person, uh, <laughs> I went overboard. Don't do that. Strike once, not twice. If they insult your mom's Plymouth Rock cake. But what we see here in uh, John 14, 15 through 26 is really this kind of this picture of what it looks like for us to be in a relationship with Jesus and what our actions look like flowing out of that. Because one of the things that we'll see over and again in the course of our lives and the course of the people and the lives around us is that our lives don't always match up with what we say. And so you might walk over and say, Trey, are you, are you a believer and follower of Jesus Christ? You would say, yes. You'd say, Jeff, are you a believer and follower of Jesus Christ? You'd say, yes. You'd say, what about what I saw you do last week? How do you respond to that? What about what you, what you said about your behavior last week or, or your thought patterns last week when you clearly weren't obeying what Jesus said? And so what we see contained here in John 14 15 through 26 is in some way an answer to that. So let me read 15 through 26, and then we'll walk through it together. Jesus speaking, picking up in verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the words of the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so you notice this hinges in some sense on the concept of love and obedience. 
Now, you'll notice if you flip back to John 13, really in the first verse, that the initiation, the move towards love, came from Jesus. And so all of John 13 and moving forward is this farewell address of Jesus to his disciples. But if you look back in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world to the Father, what does it say? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so we get this sense that Jesus' love for the disciples did not falter. It did not fail. It was perfect. And the perfection of his love called them to respond in kind. And so my outward aggression towards Hunter asked him to respond in kind. And Jesus' perfect love and outward direction towards the disciples asks them to respond in kind. But look a little bit later in John 13, you come to verse 34, and he moves from his love for them, which never ended, to a direction for them. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So he begins to build down into them what it is to be a Christ follower and how then our identity should be known. Do you know that primarily, according to the New Testament, the way that people should recognize you as a follower of Jesus Christ is based upon your outward display of love. It's not the words you use. It's not the t-shirt you wear. It's not the way you drive. It's not where you attend church on Sunday. But the main way that people should know and recognize you as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ is how you demonstrate love. This is what he says. A new commandment I leave to you. So when he opens up here in John 14, he's beginning to tell them about the fact that he's going to leave them, and it creates in them some sense of panic, some sense of, well, hold on now, we've abandoned everything to follow you, and now you're going to leave us. So he begins to describe to them uh, exactly that, look, I'm going to go away, I've got to go away, I'm going to prepare a place so that where I am, you may be also. But look what he does, starting in verse 15 of chapter 14, he gives them four separate commands that, that tie, with no possibility of separating, that tie their obedience to their statement of love towards him. And so it asks the question then, if I'm not obeying him, what does that say about the reality of my profession of love towards him? If I'm not obeying, if I'm not doing what his word says, what does in reality that communicate about whether or not I actually love him? Well, let's see. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So it seems to be pretty clear and dry, right? So in those moments when we are not obeying his commandments, in some sense, we are not acting lovingly towards him. Do you think that's a fair statement? It's kind of a crappy statement, but do you think it's a fair statement? It really stinks, right? Like it's, It seems unfair that in these moments when we sin, and all of us sin, raise your hand if you've made it out of this week without sinning. It's just me, I thought so. And so <laughs> what we see in these moments, that when we fail, when we sin, in some sense, we are not acting lovingly towards Jesus. So what's our response in those moments? What's our response over the course of our lives? We try harder. I'm not going to make the mistakes I, I made yesterday. I'm not going to make those mistakes anymore. We, we try harder. We, we redouble our efforts. We get accountability partners. We surround ourselves with other people. But, but is that the right response? 
Jesus has this fascinatingly freeing word for us when we find ourselves in the midst of failure and backsliding. Look at what he goes on to say. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So what does that give us an indication of? Number one, notice he says another helper. So he's talking to the disciples. He's got the guys gathered around the table and he looks to them. They already know he's leaving. So what he's communicating to them is primarily he has been their helper. Jesus has been the primary helper, the primary director of the spiritual lives of the disciples. But he's told them he's leaving. So what he tells to them is, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. So we know that the way, the course that the Holy Spirit integrates into the lives of the disciples and integrates into our lives is not dissimilar to the way that Jesus operated in the lives of the disciples. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus spent three years with the disciples, and he's going around with them. And so when, when Peter says something stupid, Jesus pulls him aside, and he's like, Pete, I've got to just think, say it out loud, turn to Mark, say it out loud. If he says, no, that sounds stupid, don't say it out loud to all of us. I know, Jesus, I know. I just thought it, thought it was a good idea. No, no, it was not. And so over and over again, he's done that, and he's engaged, and he's ingrained himself in their lives, and he's telling them, I'm going to leave, and another one's going to come, and he's going to be exactly the same for you. There is no deficiency. There is no weakness. There is no loss. There's no lack of benefit to not having the physical Jesus there when they receive the Holy Spirit, this other helper. And look at what he says additionally. He says he's going to be with you forever. This terrific promise the sense that even in the midst of your disobedience, and I want you to understand chronologically where these guys are. They're in this upper room discourse. Uh, it's coming soon that Jesus is going to be betrayed and they're going to act like cockroaches with the lights turned on. They're just going to scatter. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. And what do we notice in this? That still the promise of the Holy Spirit rings true for Peter. If today, if you find yourself backslidden, if you find yourself in the midst of losing the battle to sin and you say that in your heart you proclaim Christ as Lord, can I tell you this? The Holy Spirit will not leave you. The Holy Spirit will abide and he will be with you forever, just as it's told here that he will be with the disciples forever. Now look at what he goes on to say. He describes it, he says, even him, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot see, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, what Jesus is getting ready to make a play on is that the world has not seen him or known him. The world's recognized that Jesus teaches like nobody else's business. He's able to do things nobody else is able to do, but they don't truly know him. They don't recognize him as savior. They recognize him as a guy who's able to do a lot of amazing things, who's able to make their lives in the moment better. And so he tells them the world can't receive him because it neither knew him nor it neither sees him nor knows him. Now look what he says. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is with them. He is with them. Over the course of his ministry, he is with them. Now when he leaves, when he departs, when he goes to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit to be 
in them. So Jesus isn't making a reference here. He says, guys, you remember when we were walking back to Jerusalem yet again, the Holy Spirit was there in our midst. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I was with you. And just as I am with you, so too he will be in you. The ministry of God to the disciples, the ministry of God to the people of God is affected and made effective by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus goes on, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. What's he talking about? Why isn't the world going to see him? Because he's going to die. He's going to spend three days in the grave, but at the end of that time, he will be resurrected, and who does he appear to? He appears to the disciples. He appears to an extended gathering, but he does not do a worldwide tour. Jesus doesn't do a reunion tour and say, look, you were all wrong. I'm here to tell you you were wrong, and I'm going to go to all the cities of the Decapolis to tell them they were wrong too. No, he appears to the disciples, and it's the disciples' job, it's your job, it's my job to communicate that Jesus has risen. And on the strength of his rising, on the strength that he is now alive, you and I, too, in joining with the disciples, have the ability to live and live forevermore. Do you notice the great encouragement there? He says, because I live, you also live. Our ability to live eternally is not tied in any way, shape, or form to our ability to conform to right behavior, to doing the right thing at the right time. Our privilege to receive life eternal is in no way, hear me on this, is in no way tied to being a good boy or a good girl. It's just not tied to that. Many of us our relationship with God is so closely parallels our relationship to our parents. Our parents punished us when we did wrong. They rewarded us when we did right. And we allowed that to kind of come in and to creep and to become this understanding of our conception with God that he's disappointed and that we have a fracture in our relationship when we disobey him. And that the better we are, the closer he wants to be to us. He cannot get closer. His Holy Spirit abides and it resides inside you. And when you are rebellious, he continues to work to draw you back to himself, not himself back to you. You do not live forever based on right actions, right works. You live forever because he lives. Because he lives, there is a hope and there is a future. And that's the promise that we adhere to. So Jesus tells him in verse 20, he says, in that day you will know that, that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. And so he's, he's giving to them the explanation for back to when uh, he was asked by Philip. Philip said in verse 8, Philip said, uh, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus responds, he says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So here he turns and he's explaining this once again. And he says, this is the type of union that we will have. We will have this incredibly close union because I am in the Father and the Father is in me and I will be in you as well. And so we have fellowship with God. We have closeness. We have a relationship with God through Christ who lives. So it's such a dense, it's such a, a tightly woven passage. But look at verse 21. He comes back to it again. 
He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So we begin to ask this question again. In what sense then do I have a relationship with Jesus if I don't bother to keep his commandments? Let me just go ahead and say this. If somehow that you believe that, that, that some special incantation of something that you said years ago like got you in, I was watching an episode of a TV show a number of years ago, and the character gets off the plane. He says, I've got this whole thing figured out. All I have to do is get to the end of my life and say, I want in, will you take me? And God is bound to take me. He can do nothing else. If that's your conception of God and his forgiveness, then you misunderstand. To be a Christian is to fully submit everything in your life, to hold nothing off limits to him. And it's only in that behavior that you can ever hope to achieve obedience. Every time disobedience wells up in my life, it's because I'm operating in my strength. I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing the best I know how. I'm working my tail off to get this thing done and to honor God. If that is just this kind of steady refrain in my life, then I've completely missed it. The way we honor God and be obedient to him is submitting to the Holy Spirit. Notice back there in verse 15 when he said, he said uh, you're going to obey my commandments. And in verse 16, he said, I'm going to send another helper to you. The only way we have any chance of being obedient to God is by the agency, by the action of the Holy Spirit moving in our lives. So then, when we fail to be obedient to him, it's not a failure on God's part. It's a failure on our part. It's a failure on Matt's part. If I'm an absolute jerk to you, it's because I failed to be obedient and submissive to the Holy Spirit to help me endure your incessant questioning. No? Okay. None of you ask questions incessantly. It's just speaking in hyperbole. Some of you approach it. Really test the limits of hyperbole. But really, I mean, this is kind of true for all of us, though. Do you understand the freeing nature of this? The life God calls you to live isn't better. It's not your best. It's your worst and your most broken. Because being at your worst and being at your most broken, you are most vulnerable. And being most vulnerable, you recognize your inability to do right. And recognizing your inability to do right, you recognize your dependence upon him. It is in our full dependence upon him, being completely and totally broken. And that is the only place where we are ever able to obey. It's not doing better. It's not hiding our misdeeds. It's not covering our mistakes. It's being in this moment so incredibly broken. And can I tell you, it doesn't matter a single bit if the people around you think that you're broken or not. It doesn't matter a single bit if the people around you think that you're completely nuts and you bought into something that is a complete and utter lie. The Holy Spirit is the one who dwells in truth. And he calls you to walk in the truth of who he is. And this idea of keeping his commandments and loving him is finding yourself so incredibly broken and pliable. He can make something useful out of the mess of your life. He can make something useful out of the mess of my life if I let him.
if I'm broken. You know that stupid expression people use all the time, let go and let God, and I apologize if that's on your bumper. Like this and this alone, it, it seems to find some sense of being true. But it's letting go and purposing to stay let go, relinquishing the control of my life. Relinquishing my, my absolute insistence on, on being right and being like and being perceived as having it all together and just being broken before him. This other helper only works when we let him. And sometimes he engineers events and circumstances in our lives to bring us to the point of being broken. So this morning, maybe some of you have some, some things going on in your life. You have some sickness, you have some financial issues, you have some doubts. You know that sometimes God is using those things in your life to break you so that you can be useful for his kingdom and so that you would need him more than your intellect. You would need him more than your friends. You would need him more than your spouse. You would need him more than anything else, even breath itself. He goes on, he says, he who loves me is loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So you have Judas and John's careful to tell us it's not the traitorous Judas. This is Judas Iscariot. He says, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And so Jesus explains what he's already said. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So he's telling us this again. And my father will love him and he will come to him and will make our home with him. Well, this is very much what he said back in John 14 too. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. The idea of God making his home with us in us in some sense begins in Ezekiel 37, 27 with this idea that the kingdom of God will come and be with among, among men. And we see John bring it up again in Revelation 21, 3, this idea that the, the kingdom of God is finally and fully going to be with men. But the way we experience this now is God himself coming and taking up residence within us showing himself to us and uniting himself to us. Look at verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. So if all of chapter 14 is a giant exposition on how the inner workings of the Trinity function, what we see is that, that God the Father is creating a place for us eternally to dwell with him. That Jesus' the Son is committing himself to leave and to go be with the Father, and he's going to do that by way of the cross by way of his death. And he's going to bring us to the Father through his sacrificial death, taking on the penalty and the punishment of sin that was due me, it was due you. And what's going to keep us on this path, what is going to secure us forever, listen to this, even though Jesus mentions it four times, he's not calling us to obedience in our own strength. He only ever calls us to obedience after he says he's going to give us a helper to guide us. Do you see the freedom there? Do you see the freedom there? We're not just a bunch of two and three-year-olds running around having a, a, a temper tantrum. We are men and women indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And, and as people indwelt by his spirit, we are most effective and most obedient in our brokenness, in our yieldedness. But everything in our culture calls us to, to push back against that. 
Everything in our conception of kind of how the world works asks us not to believe that. Nobody likes broken people. Nobody likes needy people. This is the, the mantra that kind of rolls around in, in our head. I can't be broken. I can't be needy. I can't be vulnerable. These are the people he uses. To get to the place where we ask him to forgive us for our sins recognizes that we take ownership, we take some sense of culpability for our sins. And we ask him to forgive us. This is in itself a vulnerable, self-giving act. Is it so strange that over the course of our Christian lives, over the course of our existence, that the thing which sustains us is the thing that gets us in? We recognize that we have violated. We recognize my heart longs still to violate God's holy word, to violate his character. And the only thing that keeps me there is the thing that brought me in initially, the power and presence of his Holy Spirit. Jesus was with the disciples. The Holy Spirit was in the disciples. The Holy Spirit resides in you. So he gets to verse 25 and 26. And speaking to the disciples, he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, this other helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you the remembrance of all that I have said to you. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit in your life is to constantly remind you of what right and wrong are. That sense of guilt, that sense of foreboding, it could be that that is the Holy Spirit moving in your life, telling you not to do this. Telling you to get up off your backside and go talk to that person about Jesus. Telling you to get engaged. Telling you that you are a prideful wretch needing to be broken and made low. Telling you that that person that's over there crying on that bench needs somebody to come and to bring them the consolation only found in the word of God. If we're a people who believe God's word, if we're a people who think that God is faithful to us, then we are a people solely, always, forever dependent upon his Holy Spirit to lead us to walk in obedience. Do you understand? So maybe this morning, some of us, and you've been on this cycle of disobedience, of being backslidden, and then you come to church for a month or two, and you feel better, and you think about giving a little bit, and then you quit coming quickly. And, and, and over and again, this has kind of been the cycle of your life where you do a little, you do well, you do well-ish, you do better than some other people you know. But then it gets hard, and you begin to feel demands on your life, and so you just fall off, and then you feel like a complete failure, because this is, this is the course of your life. If I were preaching your funeral and I was being truthful, and I guarantee I will be, this is what I would say of you. <laughs> it's not nice to lie over dead people. <coughs> but it doesn't have to be the way your life finishes. It doesn't have to be the course and manner of your life. The thing that has to change isn't you doing better. Can I tell you that? That's the terrific freedom found in this passage He's not calling us to be better. He's calling us to be broken. The obedience that he calls us to walk in is only ever found in him. So every single sin and struggle you have, there is no victory for it in your efforts. There is only victory for it in fully inspirated life. The Holy Spirit taking his rightful place as ruler and authority of your life.
Let me pray for us as we transition and prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, I just want to pray for those in this room who they're so frustrated with constantly doing the wrong thing. They feel dejected. They feel unloved by you. I pray that, God, that they would have a terrific sense of your love for them. Just as it was said of the disciples, you loved them and your love never failed. So, God, I pray for those who are struggling with obedience. And, Father, we pray for those who they have not come to know you in saving faith. So, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them concerning sin and righteousness, that they would find freedom and release and relief and forgiveness of sins in you as they confess you as Savior and Lord. So, God, we pray that you would move in those ways in our midst in this time. And, Father, as we transition to take the Lord's Supper together, I pray that our focus would be upon you. I pray that our focus would be upon your son's sacrifice and that we would focus upon the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, teaching us all things. That you would be honored and glorified in this place, in us remembering your sacrifice and looking forward to your coming again. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.